Yeah, so like the whole thing, the whole like fortunate alignment of uh, several different factors really brought us here. And eventually it turned out to be a price for us to thrive and grow. We found that there was a very good ecosystem. The beginning at that time, probably still now, still at the beginning of a process where the government, both at the country level, Taiwan, and at the city level, Taipei, is really trying to help the um, development of the startup ecosystem with funds, grants, etc. But that's not the main point. The main point is really like the spirit, the organizations, the events to connect entrepreneurs, some uh, simplified process to obtain a working visa or just to get an entrepreneur visa, uh, foundations that were emerging that kind of help the emergence of this local startup ecosystem. And all these factors really were beginning, were starting at that time. And yeah, it's, it really was kind of like a trampoline for us to get started. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech layers, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from Asianometry. I'm your guest host today, and I'm here with Stefano from Bubble Eye. Stefano, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So it's a very interesting industry that your company is working in, user acquisition, because I used to have that sort of background. Before I jump too far ahead, can you give me an explanation or just walk us through a little bit about what Bubble Eye does and what you guys kind of specialize in? Sure. So uh, we automate user acquisition. We build a suite of tools that automate different components of the user acquisition game. And just uh, for those that are not acquainted with the space, by user acquisition, we just mean the general process and the science, sometimes it's most science, of acquiring users effectively, driving them to your apps or games. So the whole thing can be very cumbersome, very complicated, and uh, there's a big need for automation to kind of support human operations of the advertising campaigns. Can you walk us through the traditional user acquisition flow? Like how does a regular analyst, associate, or whatever, a marketer, a person, what are they doing on a day-to-day basis to run these user acquisition campaigns? And these are for like video games, right? So basically any product that is installable on a phone, this is our focus because of multiple reasons, but that's currently the focus of the whole venture. There's a host of activities that uh, user acquisition managers need to uh, carry out every day. What, depending on how advanced they are, they may do it daily or a couple of times a week. So basically these activities go from creating new campaigns to test new markets, new uh, geos or countries, or adjusting the price that they're willing to pay to acquire new users. Acquiring users is typically a uh, bidding process. There's basically an auction that happens on some channels in real time and some other channels not real time. But in any case, you're bidding against others that equally want to advertise their product to the broad audience, basically. So adjusting the price, monitoring the, the cost and adjusting the price to maximize efficiency is one of the most actions that is uh, taken every day. Monitoring creative, so the performance of the creative component of ads, meaning the advertising content itself, the video, the image, the interactive piece of content that is shown to users. That needs to be monitored. Creatives need to be replaced over time to kind of maintain momentum. Then moving budgets from a campaign to another, reallocating your marketing budget from a channel to another, from a country to another, from a campaign to another. Uh, all these actions need to be continuously uh, carried out. Then depending on the scale of the user acquisition, depending on the 
budget that is deployed, the frequency then becomes a consequence of it. But there's in general a lot of work that goes into it. It could take a full-time effort from, we have customers that have like 100 people in their user acquisition team, and they just work around the clock to tackle all these different aspects. And there's some smaller clients of ours that only have maybe five or six people and use technology to kind of complement their other staff. So you talked a little bit about the complexity and the flow of the system. Is that one of the reasons why it hasn't been done before? Like, what was the, some of the challenges towards automating this workflow? Yes, definitely. That's one of them. It's not the only one. So the diversity of the activities, of the actions that need to be carried out, automated, is definitely one big obstacle. You know, tackling the whole user acquisition game from a single angle is not going to be very effective. So if you only take care of adjusting or optimizing the bidding process, that can help, but it definitely doesn't solve all of your pains. Or only taking care of the assembling of new creatives of the new advertising content. It's also very valuable, but in itself, probably not sufficient. Or moving budgets around or, you know, detecting situations that may be concerning. For example, what is called the creative fatigue when your ads stop being attractive and stop attracting clicks they stop converting. All of these aspects are important. And the fact that there's many of them and they're so diverse, definitely it's the first obstacle to kind of developing a uh, substantial framework to automate the whole thing. But there's more obstacles. Some of them are very fundamental. For example, data. Data is very fragmented. To give you a a simple example, but there's a lot more uh, intricate ones, the information about how much you're spending sits on a totally separate system than the information, the data about how your users are performing, how they monetize. So there's a very foundation of any data system that aims to develop some kind of automation. The very basic foundation is to kind of consolidate these two types of data, cost or spend data with what is normally called the performance data. Put them together uh, so that you can connect the dots and you can tell, oh, on this, in this specific campaign, I spent this much money and I obtained this ROI. So being able to connect the spend with the, with the revenue performance or kind of like a deeper funnel engagement really allows you to see things in the right perspective and start even thinking about automation. And there's, yeah, there's a lot more uh, complication that has have to do with how data is tracked on both ends, both the cost and the performance and the format of data, the frequency that data is available at is very different. Plus, you need to connect. There's another layer of complexity, which is the integration with so many different partners. They're normally called partners. So there's the data partners. There's the advertising networks where you place your ads. There's the tracking systems or the MMPs, uh, basically uh, platforms that help you track your user performance. There's mediation platforms that are a system that specifically bring you advertising revenue. If you want to monetize your apps by showing other people's ads in your own content. So all these different systems, they all have signals that can and need to be connected with each other, but they come at different frequencies and different formats through different ways. Some come through a CSV, some come through an API, some need to be pulled, some other are pushed to you. So that the whole diversity makes it very hard to engineer and very costly to maintain over time and to make sure that all the pieces connect with each other. And then the automation game can begin because then once you have all the data and it's correct and it's all normalized and it's all frequently updated and available, 
only then can you start thinking about, okay, now what do I want to do to improve my campaigns, to adjust my bids in real time, to rotate or cycle my creatives, to move budgets around? Uh, how effectively can I detect or notice inefficiencies or react to them? All of that comes after you figure out the basics. So all these different pieces, they definitely contribute to making automation in this specific space very cumbersome. I believe this is the main reason why no one else has really developed a comprehensive suite of tools for the whole spectrum of activities that need to be taken care of. And that's why clients typically work with us rather than building it in-house. In many cases, some of our larger clients have tried in, uh, to build it in-house, have spent really big budgets for multiple years to build pieces of it. But in the end, their focus is different. Our clients are app content game developers. You know, They build their stuff, they market it. And that's their focus. And this is such a big diversion from that main business that it's a lot more convenient for them to just work with a specialist that focuses on it and maintains it and keeps the clock ticking. One of the biggest challenges that I had at my previous job was just how to handle and attribute all these things within the funnel, like you mentioned, like deep within the funnel across different data sources. How does the system sort of digest or kind of handle these discrepancies like and because like meta is going to attribute everything as much as it can for itself while google i say would might will say what happens when the two of them say they want to claim the same install or something like that well this is a very interesting question so basically what is the truth you know what should be considered a source of truth what can you trust what should you make decisions upon and the truth is that there is no truth because different sources may claim their own truth. So the best way that we have identified over the years, we kind of went back and forth between different approaches, but in the end, what proved to be the most effective one is to kind of be agnostic. So be engineer a system that allows you to maintain the different points of view, basically, to preserve it and being able to say, okay, this is the amount of installs as it is recorded by your MMP tracking system or however you want to call it, your attribution partner. And this is the number of installs for the same campaign that is being claimed by Meta itself or by Google itself. This is the revenue that you are seeing with your own in-house system. This is the revenue reported to you by your MMP. This is the revenue that the network claims. By maintaining, by supporting this different sources, different opinions, let's say, about the data, at the very least, you allow flexibility then that allows you further to define for each specific situation which piece of data you want to utilize. For example, when it comes to bidding prices, then I want to trust the cost and the number of installs that the network tells me for this and that reason. But when it comes to, I don't know, allocating my budget across networks, I rather want to trust data that comes from my MNP. For example, you may be able to personalize your, meaning each client, each user of our, of our system may be able to personalize the type of data they want to look at to make different decisions. So I think that really being agnostic and accept the fact that there is going to be heterogeneous data and different claims of truth, it's probably the most scalable way, you know, to avoid trying to bring the data back to one truth that may not fit every single situation, which is actually one of the, admittedly, is one of the approaches that we tried to follow in the very beginning when we wanted to abstract, remove complexity. Okay, we just want to remove it. We can bring it together. We build your truth. And this simplifies things because then you have one truth. But, you know, in the end, there's really such a diversity of situation and needs and talks with different networks and different really claims of truth that there is no truth. So just like customize your strategy according to the situation. 
This is the philosophy that we kind of have embraced in the past few years and re-engineered the foundations of our data system. In the end, it, it ends up being very flexible. Do you find that different games or different customers or even within across different verticals have similar needs or similar challenges or like these guys uh, very wildly different situations then you have to re-engineer the system very rapidly to accommodate them yeah that's another tricky question yeah i mean there's a bit of both but definitely there's a lot of diversity not just in the needs but also in the expected solutions to those needs if you bring them down to the uh, bare bone need, I think they're pretty common. They want ROI. They want return. Everyone wants return on their advertising spend. You know, when they invest, they want to get something back. And normally that is revenue. In some cases, you may have some campaigns that are not specifically aimed at revenue. They rather want to be the kind of network effect. They want to acquire a crowd of users to then, you know, make the experience on the app more enjoyable and attract some big spenders later on. So you may have some campaigns that are not really aimed at ROI. But in general, the rule of thumb is that, you know, for every penny you spend, you could like some ROI. So this is probably the most common need across clients. But very quickly, as you realize that different apps are built in different ways, you may have hyper-casual games that need to monetize very quickly within the first few hours. So they will need to see their data updated very frequently. They will need to be able to optimize their strategy through the hours of the day. So through the 24 hours, you really need to make some decision and adjust the spend because that type of apps expects revenue or most of the revenue within the first one to two, three days. So you really have a short time span and you need frequency. You need to monitor very early engagement metrics. You have multiplayer role-playing games that expect a much larger uh, lifetime for their users. There's uh, e-commerce apps, subscription apps that work in a totally different way. So every app is different by nature. They look at data in a different way and they pick different KPIs as the indicators of the ROI that we talked about. So everyone needs ROI, but what that ROI means is very different for different companies, for different app publishers, uh, in terms of the metrics that they need to monitor, the frequency of the data that they need, and the strategy toward it. For example, for some kind of app that expects a longer lifetime for their, for the users, you may use some kind of LTV projections, predictions to kind of, you know, foresee how well a certain user will perform three months down the road, six months down the road, because you expect a very long lifespan for your users. And then the ability of predicting LTV becomes a key ability to the system to kind of make the right decisions beforehand without waiting those three, six, nine months. For hyper-casual, it's totally different. You need to react quickly to early indicators. For example, the percentage of users that complete the tutorial within the first four hours after installing. You know, or the amount of people that sign up for a subscription within a certain amount of days. So the challenges start really diversifying and you know, forking very quickly as soon as you realize, and as soon as you start working for very different types of clients. And the strategies are different too. So everyone wants to somehow optimize for just to pick one of the components of user acquisition that I mentioned earlier, that the price adjustment or the uh, the bidding automation, everyone would want to come up with the best or the right price for each ad placement, basically. Uh, that's the most granular possibility to kind of like make sure that you pay the right price, not too much, not too little, to get the best performance uh, traffic from your ads. 
But that process, the techniques are very different. Some clients, they have some very broad goals. They just say, I just need this ROI by day 30. You figure it out in your automation. Some other clients are very strict. They say, oh, if we don't see any performance after 20 installs, we want the certain source of users to be blocked or we want certain behavior. So over time, we realized that there is, even though there is a commonality that everyone expects on ROI, bottom line, there's still a lot of differences in the way clients expect their user acquisition to be developed and operated. And that's why, so we started adding pieces to the product over the years. We are the probably the uh, product that's been the longest in this space, like globally. So we started working on automating user acquisition in 2017. So it's been yeah, well, almost six years now. And... Um, so over the years, we really uh, developed together with our clients and together with the growing diversity of our clients. So now we support a complete spectrum of features that, for example, allow you, meaning the client, to specify your rules if you want to have some specific behavior on top of the AI behavior that we would enforce. So you can use our algorithms to kind of spontaneously decide what to do in certain situations, but you can also have your rules that say, Oh, but I want that if this happens over seven days, if my spend increases over 20% over budget, then do this one action specifically. And then the, we allow each individual uh, client with specific needs to kind of enforce their own logic on top or hand in hand with the automation that is more like AI powered, algorithm powered from our own system. Allowing the two things to live without conflicting with each other, without being mutually exclusive. I think that's a very important piece to the puzzle because coming back to your original question, yes, there is a lot of diversity. So kind of like we do provide a set of ways of different algos to suit different situations, but there will always be a new use case that we don't cover and we shouldn't expect that that, that doesn't exist. We should rather embrace it by allowing every user to, again, add their own desired logic that they have seen maybe working manually for a few months or for a few years. We allow them to enforce it and to have it work together with the app. So, so obviously you're very sophisticated in this field. How did you get started and how did you kind of get your first users onto the platform? Uh, okay, so uh, I used to run a uh, an indie game publisher and I got pretty lucky. I managed to, uh, to have an exit from that business. And I, I came up with the concept of BubbleEye as a solution to one of the main challenges I was facing which was basically cracking that very basic equation where the average cost for acquiring a new user is lower than the average revenue per user. Okay, basically, the ROI equation. You know, it was very hard because user acquisition itself, I mean, there's two faces to the problem, right? One is your own product. It needs to be able to monetize and to you know, sustain itself, to engage users. On the other hand, user acquisition needs to be efficient enough for you to to be affordable and to drive use high quality users at a cost that can be absorbed within the the revenue region that was the original challenge so i started from that background so i had a need very clear in mind and i had some connections in the space because i had been building games on my own so the very first client came from one of the contacts that i had in my game development circles. And that's why in the very beginning, our product was a solution for gaming publishers. Eventually it evolved and it went beyond that. And now it's all sorts of apps, uh, e-commerce, entertainment, any kind of app. 
That's how I started. But I knew the pains and the challenges from the inside. That's how I knew that they would resonate with other clients. And it was pretty easy at the beginning to kind of get them on board, get other clients on board by showing them a solution to the pain that I myself had been experiencing. And then over time, though, because... You know, the more I watched Babalai, the, the, the more I detached from the a game or app publishing world itself, because that, it's a world that evolves very quickly. So uh, what started being really key to our further developments was to work with clients to build partnerships with them. And we were very lucky to basically have some stronger partners that really championed the development of new features uh, within our product. So a specific client championed the development of our creative automation. They walked us through the pains that they were having of uploading creatives to multiple networks, of transforming a video into different formats, different resolutions, file sizes in order to comply with different advertising network specifications. The pain and the, the workflow of cycling through different creatives over time within a campaign to find which creative content would convert best within a specific campaign, within a specific country, within a specific network. So, And then we had another client that championed our budget allocation. And again, they walked us through the way that they were doing it, through the challenges they were facing, and they helped us with a solution for them. And other clients that helped us, uh, that walked us through their own challenges predicting LTV, they really told the lifetime value of their users. So they really told us, we tried using, you know, regressions like everyone does. Kind of you expect a certain logarithmic progression for your uh, users, average revenue per user. But in our case, it doesn't work for this and that reason. So we cannot use an off-the-shelf PLTV model, uh, predicted LTV model. And they walked us through it and then they helped us find a solution for it. So they helped us design a set of different PLTV algorithms that allow us to effectively predict LTV for different types of apps that monetize in different ways that have different retention curves that are not uh, the mainstream uh, logarithmic or, or exponential curves, basically. So it's very important to stay in touch with the actual needs of the industry. And we are, this is something that I always tell our clients, we're not a marketing company. We're not an advertising company. We're a tech company. And with all the, you know, the, the good and the bad that comes with it, we rely on our clients to identify pains and solutions, but we are very good at fixing them once they make us aware of them. So we're kind of like a SWAT team of automation that needs this continuous osmosis with our clients. And thankfully, again, I think we've been very lucky to find some clients that really champion the developments of certain specific features and allowed us to have what we have today, which is really a toolkit where different things could may or may not be activated by different clients depending on what they need. So what made you decide to build the R&D headquarters of your tech company here in Taiwan? Like what brought you here to Taipei? It's been a, um, a mix of different reasons. So at first it was... I would say almost by accident or by luck, actually, because it was a very lucky accident. Uh, you know, after selling my previous business and you know, trying to shape up the, uh, the whole concept of Bubble Eye, I went to the Bay Area for several months. And by the way, I was kindly hosted by a, a mentor who likes defining himself as a Sherpa. Like, you know, like a very patient, selfless guide. And he really is. And he really like kind of uh, hosted me in this like a uh, very nice villa in South Salita, just north of San Francisco. Because so I was very, very fortunate already. And I spent several months in the Bay Area with the purpose of figuring out 
you know, the best way to put together bubble. At that time, I was actually based in Beijing, China. So I went from Beijing to San Francisco, spent a few months there. And then who do I find? I find an investment fund that told me that they were going to start a brand new accelerator of all places in Taiwan. And the idea sounded very interesting to me. I mean, I was really at the stage where, you know, I had some concept working for private heights. I was starting to work to get to assemble a tech team to kind of uh, build it up together. And right at that time, I got in touch with this investor who was studying an accelerator just like two months later in Taipei. And that was the fortunate occasion. Then the program itself was meant to last only two months. And at the end of it, just like every accelerator that put you on stage, you got your demo day. We got, again, we got lucky one more time. We got our first investor from Singapore that came in through the demo day already. And then we were like, well, you know what? Taiwan is actually a great place to be. I mean, th- during those two months, we realized the perks of it. We were able to hire, I think, two, three really good engineers in Taiwan during those two months. English speaking, very high sense of responsibility, self-managed, proactive, experienced, good learners. I was like, wow, okay, this is it. I mean, why going somewhere else? And we eventually discovered a lot of perks to it. By the way, also, I forgot to mention that another fortunate coincidence is that right at the time where when I decided to move to Taiwan temporarily to join the accelerator, right at that time, I started working with a guy, brilliant engineer, who turned out to be the best of the best and to be our CTO eventually. So a PhD from Taiwan's top university, like a really big mind who helped me put the whole things together. And that's uh, Bruce, his name is like uh, Bruce Lee, by the way. So a, a ninja in many senses. Yeah. So like the whole thing, the whole like fortunate alignment of uh, several different factors really brought us here. And eventually it turned out to be a price for us to thrive and grow. We found that there was a very good ecosystem, the beginning at that time, probably still now, still at the beginning of a process where the government, both at the country level, Taiwan, and at the city level, Taipei, is really trying to help the um, development of the startup ecosystem with funds, grants, etc. But that's not the main point. The main point is really like the spirit, the organizations, the events to connect entrepreneurs, some uh, simplified process to obtain a working visa or to, to get an entrepreneur visa, uh, foundations that were emerging that like, kind of help the emergence of this local startup ecosystem. And all these factors really were beginning, were starting at that time. And yeah, it's, it really was kind of like a trampoline for us to get started. Really, when I looked around and I consider A, going back to the Bay Area, B, going back to Beijing, China, or C, staying here, or even D, going maybe back to Europe, because I'm originally from Europe, without any doubts, I mean, Taiwan looked like the right place at that time. And it still is. Honestly, there's still a lot of perks here, like uh, very good talent, even though it's becoming harder and harder because it's it's on higher demand. But I would say that there's very good talent. And there's, uh, I think, culturally, engineers in Taiwan have, I mean, I would say probably it's a factor of the whole population population in Taiwan, not just engineers. So the fact that Taiwan is an island and it has been used to and forced to open up to the world for many decades, really comfortable place to do business. I was never treated as an outsider, which happened to me where I was living before, even though I I lived there for uh, more than 10 years almost 13. I was always an outsider and things were a little bit hard for me than it were for others. But here, I mean, you can see it's really open. There is no difference and you can do business, you can get investment. Our lead investor recently, our main investor is a 
Taiwan-based private VC firm and also very supportive, very open and very helpful as well. So there's a lot of good factors that make Taiwan the right choice for us at this stage. What have been some of the resources and partners you found to be helpful in Taipei to use and also that you might recommend to others? We found many. We found a lot of general interest in the startup world because traditionally Taiwan, I mean, up to a decade ago, even less, probably up to seven, eight years ago, startups were not a big thing in Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is the land of semiconductors, the big heavy industry. But, you know, eventually from hardware to software, there's a necessary step. I mean, the two realms have been blending and merging uh, more and more over the years. So the emergence of the software ecosystem here is and was inevitable. Uh, so there has been a lot of interest around, I would say, software and entrepreneurship in general. So there's mentors, there's angel investors, there's groups of say, supporters that are emerging, foundations and whatnot. One example of these foundations is the Epoch Foundation and Garage Plus itself, the program that we are currently partnering with. And all these organizations, they're very, very supportive. They aim to help startups, no matter if local or, I mean, we are local, but founded by a hybrid of local and foreign entrepreneurs like myself. It doesn't matter. As long as you're here and you're building a business here, you're helping develop this kind of local ecosystem, all these resources become available in terms of connecting with partners, clients, investors, media, office spaces, recruiting, talent, you know, all anything that you could be connected to, you will be basically through this organization. So a very good example, I would say it's Epoch Foundation. Another one is the accelerator that we went through back six years ago. It was called Mox Accelerator at that time, later renamed into Orbit. And really a bunch of investors, advisors that eventually became friends. And I'm still in touch with them. And we, you know, we sit together, have coffees, they challenge me. And the fact that there, there's this, these people around and there's this interest in seeing us grow and seeing the local ecosystem grow, it's just very healthy, I feel. It's very helpful for a, for a startup. When you started out, I, I expected you didn't really have a lot of Taiwanese clients. But mobile gaming is pretty large here. Have you been able to like, onboard any Taiwanese mobile game makers here? Or have they mostly been still kind of outside the state? We have been able to work with a few of them, but not as many as I would like to. For a few different reasons. Our focus in terms of the advertising traffic that we cover. So we started recently covering a really broad, I would say a very comprehensive set of advertising channels. But in the past, for the past, I would say at least four years or so, up until one year ago, we were really focusing on a specific type of advertising traffic that is the so-called SDK network or video network. So advertising channels like uh, Iron Source, Unity, Uplovin, Mintagrel, Charcoal's ad company. I mean, some of them even disappeared recently. Some others merged, they grew. No matter what, they have a very specific type of traffic, which is not big in Taiwan. So not many Taiwanese clients are spending on those channels they expect or they expect to grow on those channels so that created an original you know uh, misfit between the local need and our product coverage which was instead very appealing to i would say all the rest of the world from north america south america australia europe middle east russia so in most other countries that type of traffic used to have a very good traction and a big need for automation here uh, it was just not much in use, so there was no stringent need for optimization of that type of traffic. 
But eventually, so now we recently started covering, we extended our network coverage to mainstream channels outside of that niche, including Facebook, Apple search ads, Google, TikTok, you know, all of those. Uh, and that really allows us to kind of like make everyone happy. We recently started acquiring a new wave of clients that can leverage the different benefits, different modules of automation on any type of traffic. That's great to hear that. I think it's kind of interesting to see the development of the Taiwanese gaming industry over time and help to see them grow as well. Uh, Stefano, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. Is there anything else you'd like to pitch or to let the viewers know that I didn't uh, cover right now? Nothing specifically, but I would say if anyone in the audience is in the business of mobile apps and games and they're serious about making it a business or into scaling that type of business, if it already is, then user acquisition is definitely one of the challenges they are facing or they're going to face. Look into technology. We are one of the partners available. I would be very happy to be in touch. But don't overestimate technology as a savior. This is something that I always tell our clients, and it sounds counterintuitive and very often startles a client when I teach them. It's like, what are you telling me? I'm telling them, we are no magic. There is no magic out there. User acquisition is a very complex process. It's a science. You do need to approach it uh, with different guns. We provide a host of different guns for you to load and shoot. And we approach things in a systematic and scientific way, which helps. And we are here for that. And I think we're one of the best, honestly, that can help you in that process. On the other hand, the machine is not replacing you, replacing humans in this. So no one knows your apps or games better than yourself. And the real success that we can all hope for is really for a blended, orchestrated kind of a user acquisition effort that goes from concept to the creative process to the automation and optimization process where we wouldn't have to be a piece. But definitely the key to success is working hand in hand and having the more manual, professional, uh, human part of the business carried out together and at the same time with the automation that we can truly help with. So yeah, be in touch. I would be very helpful to chat more about this with anyone from the audience or yourself, John. Always a good topic to chat about. And uh, I hope to to help you and, your, and, and many others grow. Thank you so much. Stefano, thank you for your time and um, have a great one. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me.